Hey everybody, uh, I want to welcome you to City Church, especially if it's your first time, we're thankful that you chose to come tonight. Uh, as Jeremy said, my name is Andy Resch and I'm a covenant member here. I'm also the leader of our high school ministry and we have a bunch of our leaders and high school students in here, which is pretty cool tonight. But you probably already figured out that that's the ministry I work for based on the tattoos and my affinity for plaid and pizza parties. But, <laughs> but we are at the five o'clock service, so it's kind of half the guys in here. Um, while we're at it, let me go ahead and get my shameless plug out of the way. Our high school ministry is in full swing right now. We meet every Wednesday at 6 o'clock at a different student's house each week. Um, if you're interested or you have questions or something I say catches your attention, um, feel free to talk to me after the service. Or you can follow our, hey, there it is, our Twitter at city underscore students. Um, and if you don't like what I have to say tonight, please send your concerns and feedback to Jeremy at borocitychurch.com. I learned that trick from Trevor. Also, as uh, I don't know if Jeremy said this or not, but I am a, a sixth grade math teacher for 40 other hours during the week. So while I'm used to what you guys might consider public speaking, you guys are a lot bigger and you smell slightly better and you guys all choose to be here. And it's, but it is a little weird to be up here without a whiteboard behind me or a dry erase marker in my hand. So just bear with me. And if I yell at you for talking in class or send you to the principal's office, just roll with it. Uh, so let's see here. So we're going to uh, dive in, and I want to start with a little story here. Give me one moment, I'm sorry. Uh, in 1973, in Stockholm, Sweden, there was an event that changed the way that the world would look at hostage situations um, from then on, and we still use that as kind of a reference point today. There was a bank called Credit Bonken, and I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation, but it was held siege, and... Uh, a good number of the employees were held hostage and a few of the customers. Uh, at the end of the captivity is where things started to get kind of weird. Uh, the hostages actually resisted the rescue attempts that were coming from the rescuers, and several of the hostages even refused to testify against their captors in court, not because of any kind of fear, but because of an attachment they had to the uh, hostage takers. Somewhere along the way, they had come to identify and even sympathize with the source of the threat to their personal safety. And after the case, the part that kind of floored me the most was some of these um, hostages even raised money together to uh, fund the legal defense of their hostage takers. Now there's a guy who's, this is another name I'm going to mispronounce, his name is Nils Bejero, and he's a renowned criminologist, and he was highly involved in this case, and afterwards he used the term Stockholm Syndrome on TV, and that name has kind of stuck for this condition where um, abused victims or hostages kind of start to develop feelings of affection towards their hostage takers. So what's going on here? Why did these people act like this? Doesn't it seem kind of insane to you? I know it does to me. Well, professionals believe that it starts out as a defense mechanism or a survival strategy that our minds come up with so that we'd feel less threatened. So basically every moment the hostages weren't being yelled at or hit in the head with the butt end of a gun, they saw it as an act of kindness or even an act of neighborly friendship, and some of them even started to, to feel feelings of love for these people. Now, psychologists say that it's actually might more com much more common than you and I might believe, and it's the same thing that causes adults who are abused as children uh, by their parents to defend the actions of those same parents later in life. It's the reason that we always hear stories about people who stay in abusive relationships or go back to those relationships and it's the reason that you and I continue to rationalize behaviors that have been harmful to us in the past, even when we've been shown the harm of those actions. 
What I want to show to you tonight, uh, show to you tonight is that we all have a kind of spiritual Stockholm syndrome that we, we face every day. And a way, it's a way that we defend and empathize, empathize with the very things that hold our soul hostage. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to Galatians 3. If you don't have a Bible, we provide those. They're in the back. Feel free to take one. Those are a gift to you. Um, you can stop there on the table back there beside Jeremy. So uh, whenever we read the Bible, context is extremely important to understanding what we're about to read. So I want to give you just a little bit of background information to bring you up to speed. A lot of what we call the New Testament, or the second half of the Bible, is made up of letters that were written by a man named Paul. And Paul was a man who um, life was drastically changed by an encounter that he had along a roadside with Jesus after Jesus had raised from the dead. And after that experience, it changed Paul's life, and he became a leader of the early church, and he started churches all over the ancient world. And Galatia was a city where Paul planted one of those churches. Now, let's see. Uh, the book of Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church after he left there. He wrote, you know, they didn't have email back then, so he had to send letters. And news had traveled to Paul that the Galatian church had begun to take the message he shared with them about Jesus, and they started to listen to some different voices. See, there were some religious bullies that were called the Judaizers who were convincing the Galatian people that they had to obey their rules along with following Jesus and what Paul had taught them. So in short, they were abandoning the gospel that Paul had preached to them. They were returning to these Jewish laws as a way of trying to earn or obtain their salvation. So that's the, the Cliff Notes version of what was happening in chapters 1 and 2 and before the letter was written in the context to bring us up to speed. So we're going to start reading in chapter 3 at verse 1. And it's a long passage. We're going to read most of the chapter tonight, but we're going to skip over some parts for the sake of time. And the parts that we're skipping over are extremely important. I do encourage you to go back and read those on your own time. But for the sake of time, we're going we're gonna to jump around a little bit. So just try and hang with me. And these verses will also be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Starting in verse 1, just follow along, please. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Skipping down to verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And we're going to skip down to verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give us life, then righteousness would be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ, Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And that's the words that Paul wrote in the words uh, of Scripture. And I want to show you today how that applies to our own hostage situation. And the first and most important thing that we see going on here is that the law is meant to be a diagnostic. The gospel is a cure. This is essentially the message of the entire Bible, and Paul makes it plain here as well. Let me ex- explain to you what I mean. So in the book of Exodus, which is towards the beginning of your Bible, God gave a list of commands to his people. Now most of us, whether you've grown up in church or not, just from being in culture, have heard of the Ten Commandments. These were just ten commandments from a list that eventually grew to over 250. That's what we call the law, and when I say law the rest of the night tonight, that's what I'll be talking about, is this list of 250 commands uh, in the Old Testament. Now, the law was never intended to be a way that good people could get to heaven. The law was not supposed to be a way for people to prove how good they were. Rather, it was actually, and this may surprise some of us, it was supposed to expose how bad people were. It's supposed to show us how sinful and how much unlike God humans actually are. The Bible says that before Christ, we were captives under the law. It said it right there in Galatians. Now, a captive is someone who is stuck in a confining or undesirable circumstance from which escape or relief seems difficult or impossible. And that pretty much sums up our condition under the law, right? Achieving salvation by doing enough good seemed hopeless. And guess what? That's the point. It was supposed to create a longing for escape, a longing for another way, or a sense of hopelessness in our own abilities. Now, that can get kind of confusing, so I want to explain it to you with a more concrete example. Last year, actually about exactly this time, I started getting chest pains a couple times a day um, during school, and at first I chalked it up to crazy sixth grade students, but eventually um, I knew that chest pain is not something you want to just let go. It's not one of those things to put on the shelf for a later time, so I went to the doctor to get it checked out. At first, the doctor wasn't really sure what was going on, so he decided I had to go through a whole bunch of tests. Uh, He tested for all kinds of things, and some of the tests that I had were Uh, An EKG, I had some behavior checklists, I had to go reveal all my family history, uh, some dietary tests, a couple other scans that I had letters and things, but I don't really remember what they were called. Now, these tests were important, like, they better be, I paid a lot of money for them, right? Or my insurance did. (laughs) But those tests uh, were never going to take away my chest pains, even if I went for them every day. They weren't supposed to, right? They were just to be a diagnostic tool. They were designed to shine a light on what was causing my pain in the first first place, and they told the doctor what was really wrong so that he could treat it. And it turned out to be nothing. I'm healthy. I'm still here. Yay. Well, brings up I'm kind of healthy. I obviously have a broken finger, and I have to be careful how I show that one to you guys. Um, (laughs) Now, can you imagine if I had tried to use an x-ray to fix my broken finger? You know, like every morning, twice a day, with meals, I got up and I just rubbed like a picture of a compound fracture all over my hand or went in for x-rays twice a week. You know, it would be absurd, right? It's never going to fix the compound fracture that was in my finger. It would be ineffective and frustrating. And that's what it's like when we try to use the Old Testament law as a means to becoming a better person or to get our salvation. Because, see, the law is a diagnostic tool, but only the cross can cure us. Paul repeats that over and over in this book of Galatians and throughout the whole New Testament. He says that the law is just like a giant blinking arrow pointing us on to something else. 
Let's look at verse 23, 24, and 25 on the screen. It'll be up here. You see where Paul writes that we are justified by faith? He says justified here because that's what we were trying to do by following the law. We were uh, trying to obey enough to justify ourselves or show that we were worthy of God's love or just other people's admiration. We were trying to keep all the rules so everyone would think that we had some kind of value. But what Paul says here is it's not what we do, and he says it over and over, rather it's faith in Christ's substitutionary atonement on our behalf that justifies us. Now, substitutionary atonement can be, a, that's a big seminary word, and I didn't go to seminary, so I need to give you guys another definition for that. <laughs> um, what it is, it's just a really complicated term for something that's beautifully simple. And I like to sum it up in that city church, we even sing a song that sums it up in four words, and that's Jesus in my place. And what that means is Jesus did follow the law, therefore deserved life, yet what he got was death. And you and I, we can't keep the law, so we deserve death, but somehow we get the life that was owed to Jesus. And that's the justification that we really need, and that's what we call the gospel. We're finally free from a law hanging over our heads every day. It's like our medical test that was constantly pointing out bad news to us um, has finally come back clean and negative. But there's still a problem for us, though, isn't there? Because I know, I don't know about you guys, but when I put my faith in Christ, it wasn't like I just stopped wanting to sin or do my own thing. I struggled with it for a while, and still do, and that's because religion and rebellion are the symptoms of our spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. As human beings, as I said and kind of hinted to earlier, we all have Stockholm Syndrome. For some reason, we go back time and time again to our original captors. We know the results of trying to earn our salvation from following the law, right? Uh, Frustration, despair, disappointment, even self-hatred and loathing. Because we couldn't do it. We couldn't earn our salvation. We weren't good enough. So why do we, just like the Galatian people, continue to add these arbitrary requirements to what God has already done? And now you might be thinking, I don't, I don't think I'd do that. But I can tell you guys, I do. I do it all the time. If I'm honest with myself, it's the reason that I question how God could save certain individuals who I deem as worse than me or think their sin is somehow more offensive to God than my sin. And it's the reason you might turn up your noses at a church that isn't just like yours from home or you turn up your nose at people who don't look, act, speak, or live the same way that you do. And at the root of the problem, we see it's our pride. We want to play a part in our own salvation. We have a hard time receiving something, especially in America, without earning it. I mean, in our culture, it's offensive to do that, right? To, earn some, or to get something without earning it, we're almost disgusted by it. Think about it. Don't we love to see the children of celebrities fail? If you go through Kroger, when you're checking out, all you see is gum and tabloids, right? And we see... I can give you a couple names, Hilton, Kardashian, and you're already starting to have these pictures in your head. We hate that they're wealthy, excuse me, based on no effort of their own. We think it's almost shameful. So is it any wonder then that we feel that way towards our own salvation? We want to do it. We want to earn it. So we read our Bibles more, and we pray more, and we hand out tracts and volunteer at soup kitchens, all of which are really good things, but when we do them to impress God, or, or somehow earn his love or salvation or acceptance, these good things become an idol or a substitute for the salvation that Christ says he's already accomplished for us on the cross. And you guys know what it's called when you're trying to earn your salvation? At City Church, at least, we call that religion. And religion in the negative form is obeying God 
to get something from him. Either his approval or his gifts, maybe a secure life, a boyfriend, a Super Bowl victory, a national championship, whatever it might be. I mean, you've all done it. We make, we make deals with God. I'll do this. I'll read my Bible for a whole week if you just let me pass my test on Friday. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, or you've kind of zoned out, and you're saying, yeah, all these legalistic folks always trying to hold me down and put rules on me. Go get them. Well, you guys are probably also the same folks that think God is about your happiness, and as long as you're happy and not hurting anybody, God should be happy with that, right? I mean, he forgives us anyway. He says that in the Bible. So there's no need to get caught up in these rules, and you can't judge me. How do I know that's what some of you are thinking? Because that's what I think on a regular basis. That's where I come from. I'm what you might call the rebellious type. I kind of feel like a walking stereotype up here tonight with like shave guy, earrings, tattoos. He's a rebel. Shocking. (laughs) When I leave here, I'm going to get on my Harley and ride off into the sunset with a marble red hanging on my mouth and go to some Occupy something. I don't know. But you see what I often fail to remember as the rebellious type, is that rebellion is an approach to God that says, I don't have to listen to you or obey you. I get to choose what I do. As long as I don't hurt anyone. And guess what? To all my rebellious friends out there, trying to stand up against the man, wishing for peace, love, and unity, and, wanting, and screaming, only God can judge me. You guys are oftentimes guilty of the exact same sin as the people that you're crying out against. Those religious people that you call uptight or conservative fundamentalist or legalist or some much worse names, I know because I've said them, you're not off the hook. You see, you're likely struggling with the same issue of pride that uh, the religious folks are. It just has different symptoms. For the religious, on this side, we think that we're capable of doing the impossible, of earning our favor with God or our salvation. And on the other side, for the rebellious, we think that we know better than God about what is best for our lives. You see, they're just two sides of one coin. So as Christians who've been freed by the bloodshed on the cross, what can we do about this Stockholm Syndrome that we've developed? A diagnosis is good, right? But we need a cure. How do we stop running back to our sin? How do we stop running back to what was once comfortable? And the answer will be confusing at first, but I'll explain. Our antibiotic is also our daily vitamin. Now, don't raise your hand, but anybody in here ever taken an antibiotic before? Why do you take an antibiotic? You take one to get rid of some bacteria that's causing you to be sick. It might be a sinus infection or strep throat, whatever. But you would never take an antibiotic to grow. And parents don't sit a little Flintstone antibiotic beside their kid's cereal in the morning and tell them to take it, right? To grow, you take a vitamin. A vitamin gives you the nutrients you need to stave away illness in the future. Well, in one sense, the gospel is like our spiritual antibiotic, and it cures us from our disease. But on the other hand, it's also the vitamin that we need to stay healthy. So if you're a Christian today, there's a moment when you first believe that Christ's death on a cross was the atonement or the payment for your sins. For some of us, we can remember that point vividly. And others of us, it happens slowly, and we can't really pinpoint an exact moment, but there was a time, if you call yourself a Christian, when you crossed from death to life. And I don't want to devalue that. That's important, and the Bible talks about it. That's the gospel as an antibiotic. It's what puts us in right standing with God and gives us a relationship with Him. But the Bible is also pretty full about talking about the mistakes of followers of Christ after they've had that cure, right? 
and their need for a constant reminder as to the lengths that God went to win them back to himself. Let's look at Galatians 3 again uh, in verse 3. See, Paul says here, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer to that is no. The same power that brought us from life to death is the power that's going to keep us living a life that glorifies God. It's what keeps us from sympathizing with our captors and committing ourselves to be hostages to sin again after we've already been free. It's reminding ourselves about the lengths that our rescuer went to save us in the first place. You see, the gospel is our daily vitamin that grows us. It empowers us to say no to sin and yes to a God that loved us enough to die to free us from our bondage. So that leaves every one of us in here today at one of two places. Some of you today are still living in that original captivity. You've never been rescued. Some of you didn't even realize that you were living that way until you walked in here. And now whether those, that captivity is a, a chain of legalism and religion or chains of rebellion, the bottom line is that you're still held captive. And as we saw today, no amount of trying is ever going to break us or get us out of that hostage situation. The only way to remove those chains is to let someone else pay my ransom for me. And God, in the form of Jesus, came to earth to live the perfect life that you or I couldn't, and but then he died the sinner's death that you and I deserved. It's Jesus in my place. He's done all the work to make you free today. All you need to do now is believe and turn. Believe that it's true and turn the trajectory of your life to follow Christ. And that's it. And folks, we have lots of people here that want to help you in that. And all you have to do is let somebody know. You have cards on your seat while I'm talking or during the music. You can fill that out and let us know or talk to somebody that came with you. And don't be ashamed of that. If Those of you that you're going to talk to have already done that. Second, to those of us who have been rescued by Jesus, where are you still waking up every morning and returning to your hostage crisis? No matter who you are, because we do live in a fallen world, I know that there's an area of your life that needs the gospel, because I'd need it in lots of areas. So what area of your life needs to hear the gospel today? Where are you trying on your own? And City Church, listen, this is why we meet to worship on Sundays. It's not so that we can hear a motivational message or laugh at some jokes. It's not so that we can sing fun songs with the band. No, we meet so we can constantly remind each other of what Christ has done to rescue us from our bondage. We sing songs that remind us. We hear messages that remind us. We meet in community groups throughout the week to remind us when we are falling down from Sunday. We read our Bible, or we should be reading our Bible and praying and talking with other believers so that we can have another dose of that vitamin every day. So what parts are, of you, <clears throat> excuse me, what parts are you holding on to today? Where do you need to hear the gospel? As the band gets ready to come back up, I want you to think about that. Where do you need to let Christ in to free you today? Do you need an antibiotic or do you need another dose of vitamins? You don't have to be hostage to your sin. Your captors don't define you. And I want you to think, are you free today? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, that you did die in our place. Those four words are the most beautiful words that I can ever think of. And it's because I didn't think of them, you did. Lord, I thank you that you lived an impossibly perfect life 
And you did follow every nook and cranny of that law so that I didn't have to, Lord. And you died the death that every one of us deserves so we didn't have to do that either, Lord. And I pray that you would seek us out, Lord. Send your Holy Spirit to search the depths of our heart and, and to uh, just show us where we need to hear your gospel again today, God. And we thank you for what you've done and what you're going to continue to do. And we thank you that you don't ask us to do this on our own, God. That you've sent your spirit to indwell in us and you've sent us into a community of believers where we can go get that antibiotic or that cure, Lord. I just pray that you would just speak to us today where we are. Pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.